AI, accelerated cloud adoption, and hybrid work are fundamentally shifting how business gets done. The old way of securing your people, apps, and data doesn't work and scale anymore. To stay ahead, today's organizations need to reimagine their security and networking infrastructure with a cloud-first, unified SASE architecture. Join Palo Alto Networks and leading technologists from across the globe for SASE Converge 2023, a two-day virtual experience, November 15th through 16th, revealing how SASE, powered by advanced AI, can drive better security and networking outcomes. Register today at securityweekly.com slash Palo Alto. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just had a six-month checkup. Ah, we just had a six-month checkup. And oh, that first segment, I can't speak anymore. So listeners, please listen to that segment. Know that we covered our favorite and our not-so-favorite stories. We do this live recording and unedited, as you can tell. I'm your host, Mike Shima, laughing in the background. And maybe he'll be able to say hi as John Kinsella. Hello again, John. Hey, hey it's been a, a long time. It's a... Uh, um, I have faith. We'll be able to get our words out. All right. Well, speaking, I have faith. Good reference to um, George Michael because I had a reference to Duran Duran. So the first article I want to kick this off is that Duran Duran back in uh, the the 80s had a, uh, what was the song? Actually, this might have been 90s. Sorry. But please, please tell me now. I linked to it in the show notes. So if you're unfamiliar with the song, go check it out. Watch the video. But that stood out because some Google researchers basically figured out how to talk to the production version of ChatGPT and repeat a word to the point where ChatGPT would then just start randomly regurgitating its raw training data. So it was really interesting. So instead of just please, please tell me now, it's sort of please, 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 please repeated a few dozen times tell me now. And uh, the researchers uh, note that they could extract several megabytes of ChatGPT's training data for around $200. And uh, that's not a bad payoff. What's really interesting here is they take, in both the, the research paper and the, the accompanying blog post, they, they put a lot of effort into framing and positioning why this work is different and interesting. That was, that was my word from the first segment. Hopefully it's curious to you, John. Uh, but in this case, they, they point out that this is the production version of ChatGPT, and they're working with its AI, API. So this isn't just a purely academic, here's a model, here's how to muck about with a model. And the reason they're pointing out this nuance of production is that you know ChatGPT is supposed to be aligned, meaning it shouldn't be spitting out this tra- raw training data. It's also ostensibly has been reviewed for you know, security or review for behavior against these types of, I'm trying to not say prompt injection, but because this is a bit more than that, but there's a lot of interesting aspects of this that they do to extract the training data, demonstrate that in fact, they did find the training data. Now, by the way, they did this because they pulled down a bunch of internet data in parentheses, roughly 10 terabytes worth. So this isn't something that they did quite off on a, a research you know, laptop. But um, there's a lot of fun things that stood out to me for this. It's something actually fresh and different as an attack against an LLM. Um, so this got a yay for me. Hopefully this doesn't already start you off with a yawn. <laughs> yay versus yawn, John. How are we looking I'm at it? Somewhere in between. So one of the problems I've had, um, I think specifically with Google, um, I'm sure it's been some others, but I, I know Microsoft has done this tiny, but Google seems to do it a lot, where they seem to like to go and do security research on other people's products. 
Um, I'm, I, I've talked about before. It's, it's still every time it comes up. Like so, when I first saw this during the week, whenever it came out, um, the headline was like, "Google security team finds issue in ChatGPT." I'm like, "Why don't you go look at your own stuff?" And like, I, I don't mean that in a, a negative way. I, I, I promise. It's, it's more sort of, um, it's a. I, I presume it's a good thing in that they are giving their security team, their researchers, the ability to go and look wherever they're interested. Um, which, hey, cool for that. I presume those learnings come back into their own products. Um, but it, it seems, I don't know, that that seems just sort of, it, it leaves a taste for me, like right off the bat. I think, so leaving that whole aspect of it out, um, I think what they're doing is, um, yeah, it, it's it's got to be sort of a fun gig where you can spend half a day or hell a few weeks just sort of poking at these things and figuring out how to get them to break. Uh, and yeah, it, how, how we secure these is, um, and I'm not going down the path of we must regulate AI and I'm, I'm not going to take a stance on that either way, but like, how do you actually, how do you secure the damn thing? Like either the, it's one thing to say you can do um, input standardization and that type of thing, but like, it's sort of, um, I, I watched um, either for good or bad last night, Ex Machina, um, which is, you know, supposed to be about Turing test, but it's not even close to that. But the idea of like, okay, how do you, how do you actually, a Turing test alone is hard enough to do. Then how do you secure communication between two, uh, I don't want to say humans, but two identities. So I, I think that almost needs its own separate thing. And I think this, I think this type of vulnerability we're going to see for, years um I, i'm not quite sure where, where it'll end or how it'll end or how you take care of that maybe you have the llm itself somehow get trained on it i, I don't know um maybe that yeah. maybe that's the the big thing that sam altman figured out how to make uh, ai secure and that's why he got fired and all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Uh, thinking of things at tangents, we don't need to go down. But the, the, you were hitting on some some areas near the end of there the, the blog post. It also caught my eye. The sense of to quote, you know, it's it is very hard to distinguish between actually safe and appears safe, but is it? So, you know, is this meaning were they actually extracting training data or not? And they did, in fact, confirm to a high degree of confidence that it's training data they were looking at rather than hallucinations. And they were also making the point that, yeah, it's, it is fun. And of course, I had fun with uh, my, my Duran Duran references. But um, they point out, like, if you just say, oh, the, the the in the OWASP LLM top ten attacks, there's the repetition attack is number eleven now. Don't try to go and defeat the repetition attack. There's an underlying vulnerability class here, and that's kind of the another distinction they're making in the sense of the instance of an attack versus I think what you are maybe trying to tease out there, John, about what's the underlying flaw here and how do you how do you address this flaw within LLMs in the sense of talking from one identity to another and what it's revealing. There's another thing I wanted to touch, to, to bring in another article, because you mentioned, um, indeed, Google also, uh, there was a period in the, the early 2010s where Google was beating up quite a bit on a lot of Microsoft properties. So they're, they're, they're used to doing this type of thing. But I think there's also an aspect of, Chat GPD is popular. That's how you get. Uh, yeah. That's how you get your clicks. That's how you get your attention. We've also seen that with uh, 
Protect AI has a bug bounty for AIs. And I pulled in an article from Bishop Fox that was talking about uh, Ray, which is just in, within the ecosystem of uh, the, the LLM and generative AI environment. And here are uh, the reason I'm bringing this in is that we're seeing not attacks against the models, not attacks that are honestly unique to uh, LLMs or generative AI in any way. It's just here's an RCE. Here is an LFI. Here's another XSS, a CSRF, SSRF. Basically, here's a bunch of classic software vulnerabilities that just so happen to be in some software related to ChatGPT type of uh, solutions, meaning this is how you get attention. This is how you get the, the cool black hat presentation because it's a SSRF phone but it's in something that everybody's talking about. So again, this isn't to say anything negative against the Bishop Fox article. It's a nice write-up, but it, it does make me think, how can we make all these other types of software out there sexy? How can we make like the web interface for a VPN sexy? And already, listeners, if you're only, you know, if you're not watching the YouTube, uh, John's falling asleep at this point because wow, there's a lot of software out there that is not interesting. And um, but still needs attention. So th that's sort of where my brain went when I was thinking about like, why are we seeing these types of just basic volumes being written up in the LLM space? Actually, I was, I was working on a, um, a right said Fred reference to I'm too sexy, but <laughs> I wasn't quite falling asleep, but yeah. And, uh, you know, kudos to Bishop Fox for uh, the, the graphics department did a great job on the top of this article. I'll, I'll leave it for folks to go and look. Um, that said, I, I don't know. I, I I sort of wait. That's interesting. Um, huh. So in their under vulnerability sec, under vulnerability details, they're actually listing out the the CBSS vectors uh, with little checkboxes. Huh. That's sort of neat. Um, I like that. So instead of actually showing the vector, they're actually got like right. a few lines and saying, "Hey," um, but they're not including environmental or the other aspects. Uh, I know they can't. Um, yeah, it's you know, SC twenty three, supercomputing twenty three happened what last month of the big supercomputing conference, and um, one of our other hosts was asking if anyone else is going to that they'd want to meet, and we had this small conversation internally about security and HPC, even though this isn't really HPC, this is um, uh, um, you know, large scale AI, which is it, it's a high performance computing, but it's it's a different world than real HPC. I'm, I'm not trying to gatekeep; they're just different beasts. Um, but these large scale projects you, we've talked about before, you, security gets in the way, right? That's the cost center. Um, so, preferably, hopefully, like the you know, it's the, the reason that um, Google was getting the training data through ChatGPT is because the actual OpenAI compute clusters should be very far from a public internet connection. Um, and I'm saying that from a point of view of there, there should be fairly air gaps so that, you know, if you have a vulnerability, it's not as easy to do something with that. Um, and, you know, keen listeners are already breaking up and going, but John, once you have a vulnerability, someone's going to find a way to use it. And yes, that's, that's true in modern day compute, especially in cloud. So it, it's, I'm sure when this was written, is it looks like it's an open source project, right? Yeah, it's backed by the Ant guys. Yeah, um, or I should say the yeah Ant. Um, so it's 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 corporate based open source. Um, they should have paid a little more attention to this, but I can imagine how they didn't, right? Because usually the type of folks writing this type of software are so far 
thinking in their own little bubble, they're not doing that threat model, which we always talk about. So it's interesting to me from that point of view. I'll give it a, just for the graphic, I'll give it a yay. <laughs> and I think one other thing to add there too is that, um, you know, this the, against Ray, there was missing authentication was one of the big vulnerabilities he identified. Protect AI also had in November some additional vulnerabilities in H203, MLflow, basically a low-code machine learning platform and another open source uh, machine, you know, and uh, uh, software for managing the basically the CI/CD uh, of uh, training ML ML uh, models. Sorry, my brain is dying this morning. But in, in both cases, what I wanted to point out there is that uh, in the write-up says a default out-of-the-box installation has no authentication. In the other one, by default, ML flow lacks authentication. So we're also maybe you did mention CVSS and like the environment. These are not. This is not software that should be just dumped onto a public-facing, you know, internet-facing, accessible type of instance. It should be internal. But it's also interesting that is for the year that we're talking about secure by default and secure by design. How? What, what's the effort? What's the necessity, even perhaps, of adding authentication to uh, for either from scratch to some of these types of tooling, or is there a way to plug and play it? Um, I'm going to say within a very, very hand wavy method. Yeah, um, that's it's. It depends how these. I. I oh, let's see if this thought goes anywhere. I would like to think that modern applications written in sort of modern styles without um, authentication um, are modular enough, even if they're um, monolithic apps, I would like to say that they're modular enough that you can probably add an authentication wrapper without being too much of just a wrapper wrapper, like a HTTP wrapper. I think you, I'm, right. I'm guessing as a rule, it's easier on a fairly modern application to go back in and say, hey, I'm going to put a... Um, an authentication check at the beginning of this function or the beginning of this whatever. Um, it'd be an interesting, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how to figure out if I'm true or not until someone actually tests that theory, but that that's a, sort of a sense compared to say like 10, 15 years ago where like you're just writing code to try and get something done as quickly as possible. Well, not just quickly as possible, you're just trying to get something back out to the web and you're not really thinking about done. functions or organization or architecture or those type of things, right? It's more of a flat application, whereas I think now there's a little more tiering going on, and that might actually help make that easier. That's my thought. Could be. I, I'll throw in very quickly. Uh, I also grabbed an article about uh, security guidelines for a. Um, this is from the the CISA and from the NC. Uh, the the UK version equivalent, the UK friend, uh, but basically global guidelines for AI security. Scanning through them, about two thirds of them look like just replace AI with software development. So once again, it's 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 a lot of just you know don't have SSF, SSRF, <laughs> do input validation, have some authentication, and then it does go into ta talk about some of the the, the model and uh, more AI specific aspects. So that's good. I'll tie that into um, there was a the the first secure by design alert that CIS, that CISA ha has created here. And um, I don't know. I should have actually uh, hidden this because I wanted to guess. What, what do you think the first alert might come, might be from a secure by design that's going to come out of CISA? I saw it and I still couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to get to why in a second. Uh, I would say something related to S bombs. 
Um, uh, it, it, it's a good good guess, but um, you're wrong. But actually, you're wrong for a, probably a pretty good reason. Then I'll, I'll throw that over to you in a second about why it would took a little bit to, to figure out. But they're saying uh, basically disabling like the product's web management interface by default and configuring products to stop operating when the web management interface is exposed to the internet. So basically, it's talking about I think a lot of VPNs that have web management interfaces but expose the internet. This one, this alert, I like. I love the idea, secure by default. This one wasn't grabbing me. And there's also, uh, they wanted to say embrace radical transparency and accountability by saying have some CVE entries in there. Okay, fine. And CWE fields. But um, they were saying CWE not only helps customers understand and assess risk, it also enables other software manufacturers to learn from mistakes fixed across the industry, which honestly... I could care less about CWEs <laughs> as a as a user. Um, I, I think they're helpful for finding, you know, doing very large analysis as a you know security researcher. But wow, I, I CWEs are, are way near the bottom of the things that I pay attention to. So um, you either maybe start with that, for, or back to why was it a little bit hard to figure out even what this alert was about? Did they mention? Um, uh... Cisco or Juniper or um, oh, what's the other one? There's a vendor we've been had in the news a few times this year. Luckily, you guys are forgetting about you, so I can't make the joke. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, we, we've we've seen. I, I can see why they put it out. Um, I think one of my things I want to do over the holiday season, if I get a little bit of time um, over some eggnog, is see if I can figure out how much money Cisco spends a year on their PR budget. Um, I, I, I get it. I really get it. I get why Jen's doing this and why she is where she is and all that. But like, I just feel out, out of the orgs we think, talk about, let's say open SSF, memory safety.org, um, uh, um, OWASP, uh, I mean, hell, even throw Google in there. Um, the amount of sort of press release type stuff we see from these guys, um, and I, again, I get it. It's important that that's how they get in front of politicians and stuff like that and sort of to people. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, oh. um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a bit of, um, a sort of a word salad to me, um, how software manufacturers can shield web management interfaces from malicious cyber activity. Again, as I said, um, the vendors I mentioned already, it's, it's, it, it feels, did, did they have to put that as a, We'll leave the press release part out. Do they have to put that as their first secure by design? Is that really does that affect a lot of people? Or would you want to put out something which affects a larger group of people? Would be I guess what my thought. Yeah, and there was we haven't seen actually from the the cyber safety review board um, who was looking into things that that was put together from. Um, uh, the the big solar winds, mm. for example, that is something that was a bit meatier. You know how to learn from a major compromise or major mistake. So hopefully we do see these alerts grow in a little bit more broader relevance or some some more refined communication. Let's say, but um, we don't always have to talk about refined communication because pictures can speak a thousand words or pictures can give you access to your bootloader system and by uh, basically break your 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 root of trust on a lot of um, x86 and arm based devices so this is logo fail so actually boot 
and actually we're going to run into some namespacing issues here. Images in boot images. And here by the images, I do actually mean those pictures that speak a thousand words. And um, I, I love this, this research. I love the write-up because it's basically saying what we know, and even they call back, you know, there's been a decade plus of research about image parsers. Bootloaders are parsing images, which is a little bit of like, why do they need to really? Um, so yeah, so I, I don't know if there's anything more I need to say there because we have the uh, Kinsella, uh, what the the Kinsella giggle of uh, <laughs> acknowledgement already about just why. So let me ask you, John. Maybe you can answer this question on their behalf. Why do we need to show images during the? Boot oh, I can process? think of a valid business reason. I just I wish I had thought of going and doing this research. I mean, this is just sort of like a no brainer. I'm just like, oh, I wish I just tried that. Um, and yeah, that that's what's interesting about security. I think what what keeps a lot of us interested is like it's still yeah. there's. Hey, I could have tried that and never even thought of it. Yeah. Um, now I can see from a business point of view wanting to if you're doing like custom PCs or something, want to have your logo in there. Or, I mean, let's try and bust the logo. Fail. Let's try yeah. and make it something really um, security focused. And hey, maybe you're putting a security banner in there saying, hey, by continuing to use the system, blah 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 blah. Um, yeah. It, uh, the, you know, we're, I'll go in the direction we we're talking off air, and <laughs> just sort of throw my hands away <laughs> on that one. Um, which is, I think, what's interesting about these is, for we've covered a, a decent number of hardware. I'll say PC hardware stories this year, mm-hmm. um, or I should say x86 personal compute. I don't know. Pick your phrase around there. Um, I, I the, the comment I made to Mike off air was like, most of these, you know, even though I'm sort of a I do hardware hacking and, and play with that stuff. I'm I I don't see myself going and um, experimenting with a lot of these type of vulnerabilities. In this particular case, I don't have a PC around. Um, I mean, I've got virtual machines. I'd be really interested to see if like Parallels VM BIOS is, is suspicious of this or is, is suspects of this. I'm guessing no. Um, but it's not so much that I don't have that hardware. It's like these type of things they they require uh, a different level of. I don't want to say dedication, but I guess so. So time and um, a willingness to potentially screw up your your hardware um, <laughs> yeah. or to actually get those conditions right. Like we, I've talked in the past frequently with, with a vulnerability. It looks great in print, but to actually exploit it and, and use it for your own, own <laughs> good, um, your own learning, uh, requires some amount of you know luck and standing on one leg. And I think I'm, my guess is with a lot of these type of things, it's, it's like that again. Uh, so I think that it's it's just it's interesting to call out. It's we try to or I try to talk about things on here which are some sort of combination between uh, interesting something you can learn and dive into, but also something that is uh, you can get your hands on. And well, I think some of these are you know like we had like another what was AMD one a week or two ago. I'm like okay, can you actually play with that at home? And, and that's sort of I, I don't know. There, there's there's something interesting to it there about to me of like. Is it just a show and tell, or can you get your hands dirty? Yeah, and I think highlighting that aspect of it's hard to set up the lab just to start playing with this. You don't just have a browser, burp, or zap, and a URL, which is super easy Mm -hmm. for web hacking. Hardware takes a little bit more, which, by the way, we just ran a a Vault episode where we talked with Maggie Oregi from Intel about this very thing, about the it's hard to get you know, onboard people to have that lab and that training environment. Um, I think another thing that can be hard is sometimes the software can be 
unbelievably expensive. So, uh, John, do you have Splunk sitting around in your um, home environment? And uh, you have the budget for that, right? Um, As a podcast host? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, uh, my enterprise license of Splunk for uh, all the logs I have around here. Um, I actually was, um, earlier this year, I was experimenting with seeing if, how much I could cloudify this this place. I don't have like a ton of tech here, but like I've got enough that's sort of, you know, um, exhausting logs. I was trying to send it up to Amazon for a while, AWS. And the bill came back, and I stopped that after about a month. Um, and that wasn't even that wasn't even Splunk. So, uh, yeah. So in in this case, um, I, I will. People who want to see my snarky, snarky comments can look at our show notes later. But uh, Splunk had a uh, um, a vulnerability that was found. Um, CVE twenty twenty three eleven zero four. Hey, our CVE twenty twenty four is coming up pretty soon. Um, but. So what's going on here is um, a user has the ability to upload a XSLT, um, Extensible Style Sheet Language Transformations, for those of you who have not been playing with XML recently, uh, and it's ilk. And anyways, so it turns out there's a um, there's you know good old we're not checking all our bounds and fields in there, so there's a remote code exploit. But the link which I'm sharing for this is um, from a fellow by the name of Nathan. And it's his first blog post, and he sort of walks through how he reverse engineers. Uh, turns out the vulnerability is actually in Python, so the patch is plain text. And he's able to go through and go, oh, that's what changed. And based off that, he's able to go through and craft a, a payload to get in there and um, you know, uh, have the remote code execution. So he walks through how he does that. And I thought that was very neat, right? So it's, it's well, yes, we don't have Splunk around. I don't know if they used to have free versions. I don't know if they still do. But um, well, we might not have Splunk or Splunk Enterprise around. Uh, just reading this, and I think one of the interesting ways of doing vulnerable, or I'll say, um, exploit um, development to me has always been when you're able to get the patch and reverse it and actually see what's going on and learn from that point of view. It's cheating, but it, it's interesting nonetheless. Um, so I think for folks who are interested in that, learning how you do that, this is a really neat little review for that. Yeah, always educational to, to we, that's why we highlight blogs like this. And um, one of the things, there's a callback a bit to our first segment about six months later. I'm still curious to see what will be the first CVE that has a CVSS 4.0 rating on it, because that came out this year and um, people love their CVSS scores. And uh, I checked this one doesn't have a CVSS 4. Uh, so listeners, let me know what's what's the first one, because we'd love to see what the inaugural one for that is. But uh, John, you've also, speaking of learning, um, you've been reaching back into the past, as have I, but you went back a little bit further in your article about Turbo Pascal. Yes. I thought this was fun. And this is just a, a, a 30 second coverage, but I don't know about um, you, Mike, or a lot of our listeners. Pascal wasn't my first language, but it was the first sort of um, commercial thing I got, right? I, I started mm. probably five years earlier. I have to get the timeline, but started earlier on with basic on Commodore machines. But then when Turbo Pascal came out, yeah, I, I jumped on that bandwagon when I had my, my big old 286 back in the day. Um, so it was, it, and this article sort of goes over how it, it um, I'll say, matured in air quotes over the years. Uh, some people like that, some people didn't. Uh, it, it makes comment about uh, Pascal purists, which I'm sure they were around back then. I wasn't quite that sophisticated to know one versus the other, but I thought it was sort of uh, neat to sort of go, "Wow, that was 40 years ago." Um, and you know, sort of the 
one of the beginnings of IDEs between them and Visual Basic and what some of those companies were doing back then. So um, we've come a long way. Came a long way, yes. I, I too was a Commodore Basic and copying code out of many of the the Commodore yes. magazines and typing in those line numbers. Uh, one thing I enjoyed that actually much more than writing Perl, which uh, I did real quick. Again, another thirty second uh, coverage is I w- have to admit being a fan of Nikto, and I just came across that Nikto is still sort of under active development. There's there's at least a new release out there, um, but wow. That's still a web security scanner, for those of you unfamiliar with it, uh, written in Perl. And it was one of the old school uh, security scanners, that, and the one from Rainforest Puppy that came out of Frack oh, wow. Magazine yeah. uh, started off the much of the DAST, and DAST ecosystem that we see today. Plus, Nikto is a reference to Klaatu Barada Nikto, and I, so I had to throw that in. A, a good pop culture <laughs> reference, too. It originates from the day the Earth stood still, but of course, the favorite reference is from uh, Army of Darkness. I- and uh, so I had to squeeze that. I don't there. think I need a reference. Um, yeah, when I saw this, I'm like, wow, I haven't heard of that for a while, not alone Rainforest Guppy. I don't know if he's still around or what he's doing. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's. I, it, it might be fun to look at the source on this. I can't say I've done it, but like, what? How, how have we changed how we develop scanners over the last, what, that's 20, 25 years? Um, even like his first bullet is like added IPv6 support. And I'm sure that couldn't have been easy on a Perl app first written however many years ago. Um, but yeah, neat, neat to see that some of these things are still still kicking. And there still can be fun to, to play with and learn. And um, we are always learning. I pulled back, speaking of learning, I, I pulled in another update from Okta who basically said, oh, by the way, that breach, it did in fact expose 100% of our customers in the sense of uh, customer contact information. Things like uh, your company name, your user type, possibly your full name, username, and email were exposed in this breach. And they've been lambasted or they've been questioned or, uh, you know, why did it take so long? Or people look back and like to snarkily comment, oh, you said it was 1%, now it's 100%. But I wanted to look at this in a broader sense of, it's nice to still at least encourage transparency in breach disclosures. And we have so few references that to, to choose from. It's hard to tell is taking two weeks to expel, expel a, an attacker. How, how does that compare to other compromises? When you do further analysis and your first analysis says, well, from what we can tell, it looks like the, the exposure was minimal, then the exposure grows. As you learn more, you do more analysis. That does take time. So I, I wanted to use this more as a broader learning or maybe just honestly rhetorical question example about where are similar breach notifications or publicly discussed breach stories that give us these types of timelines or show the difficulties in understanding and doing that analysis to say, would you like to know today what we know, or do you need to wait a month when we do more investigation and we'll tell you updated versions? So I, for one, definitely don't want to beat up Okta from this perspective. I want to encourage this and others to have this transparency in timelines so we can understand what should be expectations. Yeah. And like, um, you know, I've been, I'm sure you have to, I've been in that hot seat where uh, you're writing that release and saying, Hey, we're either, it could be security or not, but like, we're working on something where we will give you up information as soon as we know. And that's one of the sort of building trust things of like the first few times you do it, our first pe- time people experience it, they're like, I, I 
I need to know this now. And it's like, you're, you're trying to give them a balance of like what you know, um, not so much reassure them everything's going to be fine, but reassure them that you are working on this hard. Um, it's a bit of a dance there. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how they went through and found it, how they're, you know, admitting that like we made a mistake the first time and we're, we're, we're looking at it from a wider lens now, um, or a different lens, I'll say. But then the, the bit at the end about their recommended best practices, I mean, they, they make sense to me. Um, it feels, it's moment in time where I am, it feels weird having those at the end of a um, announcement like this. And, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's like, hey, we're, we're trying to get you to the best place. But And I'm sure, I've used Okta at some point. I'm sure that their, their, their installation guidelines are like, hey, try to get best practices in place then. So maybe it's just a call out and a reminder. But maybe that would have been something that put into that sentence. It's like we've been telling you all along. Hey, we're, and again, how do you do that without just <laughs> yeah. having that, what I just said? Without just having yeah, that yeah. phrase, yeah. <laughs> um, of like, make sure you are still... Um, having session timeouts and session binding and MFA and phishing awareness. Right. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's always unfortunate to see this type of thing coming from a security company. That's the, the big gotcha for me. That's the hard part. So, especially when the charges a lot. Uh, but yeah, it's live and learn and move on, I guess. Live and learn. And we still want to see less of SSO.tax yes. and people, you know, they're, they're that burden of MFA. We want to see MFA by default and well configured too. So, you know, as you were pointing out, maybe that's a little bit of what the, perhaps they can do better rather than the, they're not saying this, but rather than the implied, we told you so mm-hmm. to harden your system and environment like this, perhaps just make that required. Or there are certain thresholds once you have a, you know, particular amount that you're paying or particular number of users, you reach, you have to have FIDO, something like that. So, creative ways that I'm sure they're also looking into. But this wraps up uh, our beginning of December as we're wrapping up the year of 2023, John. So um, don't know if there's any, we will, we'll have some more chances to speak, of course, together. Uh, but uh, anything you want to leave our listeners with, uh, either from the callback to the first segment or the news from today? I remember the phrase going through your head for the rest of the day should be, I'm too sexy. Go leave it at that. <laughs> Right, said Fred. Please, please tell me now if you want some Duran Duran. And I will say thank you for joining us. Thank you, of course, for that musical reference, John. That is going to be stuck in my head probably for at least the next week. I'll let you know. Uh, Listeners, if you enjoyed all of these fine application security weekly listening recommendations, please do subscribe. Hit that like button. Check out our show notes. And uh, speaking of the past, check out Sentimental from Miami Nights 1984. Some pretty good synthwave for your ears. And of course, we will see you next time on Application Security. John, don't forget to smile.